if the idea of capitalist realism is that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism, why exactly is that? My premise is that capitalism can subsume anything that is intelligible, anything that is thinkable. And that's why I've been so interested in what thought is, whether it's words that come out of our brains or the dreams that we have or sensoria. All of that can be translated into a financial commodity. It can be debased and um, take a form that may be assigned financial value without us being aware. So instead of thinking about what the future looks like, even though that may be fun and we can write science fiction about it, we need to do something right now, even though we're not quite sure what the outcome may be. And that's what it is to take a psychedelic substance. You maybe tweak your surroundings a little bit to increase the likelihood that the immediate experience of it will be a pleasant one, but you're still not sure. And the same thing can be said for an immediate economic intervention. Within our lifetime, we could look at experiments with a universal basic income or similar interventions that are risky, will take um, a calculated risk in implementing them, but we need this now. You know, we're not going to be able to imagine the future and just build it without something that immediately changes the material conditions of the present. Hello, I'm Oshan Jarrow, and welcome to the Musing Mind podcast. This podcast explores the connective spaces in between questions about the economy on one hand and questions about consciousness on the other. And in this episode, we begin exploring a space where these themes are more connected than ever and more relevant, but I haven't really had the opportunity on this podcast yet to explore it. And that is the burgeoning world of digital capitalism or information capitalism or any of the 19 other names that, that you might know it by. So on this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Emma Stamm. She is a scholar working at the intersection of uh, philosophy of technology, critical theory, and science and technology studies. Uh, she has taught at both NYU and Virginia Tech and is now a professor in the philosophy department at Villanova University. Her research interests are really wide-ranging. They include the political economy of data, psychedelic medicine, blockchain technology, to name a few. She's done a lot of writing on Mark Fisher's work on acid communism, uh, something we dig into during the episode. And I also think it's worth mentioning as a nod to the kind of serendipity of the internet that Emma and I discovered only after we'd agreed to do the show and got to talking that we're actually from the same hometown and we're both running around the grounds of the same school, you know, she in high school and, and little me fumbling about in, in middle school. But anyway, uh, th there are a few main themes out of her work that we get into today. On one hand, there's digital capitalism, which is a meeting grounds for questions about how data is transforming society and how these data-driven transformations affect or relate to consciousness. She has argued that data, being a binary form of information that is fundamentally constructed of, of zeros and ones, 
cannot possibly capture the vague kind of undetermined richness or fullness of consciousness. And that as we lean further into a data-driven world where all knowledge comes under the influence of something that she calls digital positivism, the idea that the only knowledge worth taking seriously is that which can be expressed in digital form, uh, that there are serious consequences for the aspects of consciousness that get left out. And one of the most fascinating bits of her thinking here is how the newly exploding field of psychedelic science is not only uh, pointing out the elements of consciousness that do not fit a quantitative digital positivist paradigm, but also demonstrates their value, right? The potency and the importance of exactly those indeterminate aspects of experience. She argues that psychedelic science presents an empirical refutation to digital positivism. On the other hand, uh, we expand on the idea of acid communism, right? Very much in tune with the conversations I had with Catherine Gibson and Chris Letheby. Acid communism provides a framework for theorizing the relationship between personal transformation and structural change at the economic level. One note about the audio. Um, I'm still new to this world of audio engineering and developing the kind of watchful eye that knows how to address uh, potential issues in the moment of recording. So especially for the first 30 or 40 minutes, you'll notice a few regularly interrupting noises. Mostly it's a wire tapping on a microphone, uh, but sometimes it's the outside world. So I thought rather than re-recording the episode or doing really precise kind of surgery to try and cut out those moments, I'll take the opportunity to use these noises as a sort of invitation um, to relate to audio distraction a little differently, right? Not to think of other noises as things to be screened out, but as reminders of the multidimensionality of all situations, right? That conversations have this, they have this miraculous capacity to create spaces like vacuums or echo chambers where we forget how embedded we are in an otherwise ongoing and busy world. And there's immense value in safeguarding those conversational spaces so that we can sink deeper into them, literally forgetting the world and dwelling deeper. But maybe, just maybe, there's also value in being reminded that conversations, even highly technical, abstracted ones about the nature of digital capitalism and consciousness, are always happening inside of this vast simultaneity. Right, this world teeming with billions of such spaces always suspended in the fray. And it's for the benefit of all these spaces that these conversations, at least the ones I'm shooting for on this podcast, are held. Right? So the guy who's mowing the lawn outside Emma's house, whoever it was that rings a nearby doorbell about 30 minutes in, the people driving cars that whoosh by every now and then, the point of these abstracted conversations is always to generate momentum and ideas towards creating a better world. Right, a better socially constructed context for all of these interlocking spaces to unfold. Uh, this is, it's an echo of Karl Marx when he famously wrote that you know, philosophers have so far only interpreted the world, but the point is to change it, right? To improve it for all sentient beings, as the Buddhists would say. So the point of having this highly technical and abstracted conversation about digital capitalism, acid communism, psychedelic consciousness, is to better understand the situation that we're in, so that we can be more effective in changing it. And maybe we can shift our relation to that rhythmic tapping of the wire on a microphone from one that recognizes it as a nuisance to one that frames it as a, as a reminder of the world that we're conversing to engage with. I've always liked the, the phrase, a church bell that recalls salvation. 
I was inspired by some of Annie Dillard's writing. And so I guess I'm saying that this wiretapping can be heard as precisely that, a remembrance of the salvation that we're after here. Now that is definitely an overreach in trying to rationalize audio interference, but we'll see how it works. And lastly, as always, links from the conversation or to Emma's work can all be found on the podcast website, which can be found at musingmind.org slash podcast and clicking on Emma Stam. If you find value in the podcast and want to help it exist, you can share it on social media or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're really compelled to support the show and you have the means, you can become a Patreon supporter by offering a small monthly donation, like one or two bucks a month, uh, the stability of which really helps me invest more time and equipment into improving the podcast. You can go to patreon.com slash Oshanjaro or just find a link to that from the podcast page. All right, here is Emma Stam. Emma Stam, welcome to the Music Line podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so your work sits at this crossroads between uh, a number of fields. There's philosophy, technology, data science, political economy, psychedelics, um, to name a couple that are in the mix. So I wanted to start out by asking you just however you like to introduce yourself and your work, but then a little more specifically, since you have such an interdisciplinary focus, what are the main questions or interests that kind of tie your work together, the common strands that, that run through it all? So I would introduce myself as a scholar of philosophy of technology, critical theory, and STS. And for those who don't know, STS stands for Science and Technology Studies, which is one field, but in and of itself, it's an interdisciplinary field um, that looks at basically the social impact and humanistic approaches to science and technology. So those are the three big ones academically. The questions that interest me. Well, the question that drove a lot of my research recently is what cannot be expressed as digital data, considering that we're in an age of ubiquitous datification. Hmm. Um, And by extension, what cannot be reified? What cannot be made manifest? Which is a question where some people might pause and say, you're already in in mystical, ineffable territory. If it (laughs) cannot be expressed, if it's something that doesn't take a positive form, then we're not going to find the language for it. What, you know, it's not a question that um, academics should take very seriously, at least without further qualification. I suppose my my further qualification has always been through the lens of uh, digital media studies. You know, at, at a more metaphysical level, perhaps it's about how does how does form take shape, <laughs> and then at the more practical, basic level, and this is where political economy comes in. What cannot take the form of capital? What cannot be assigned financial value? Because if something cannot be manifest, if you can't put a frame around it or articulate it in language or numbers, then it certainly can't become an economic commodity. I began my doctoral dissertation writing process with the belief that we actually can arrive at a theory of what cannot be expressed that is, I guess, fully laid out, um, fully comprehensible, or at least we can, we can gain traction on this question 
not in a way that is more advanced than what the mystics might have written about, you know, thousands mm-hmm. of years ago, or, you know, the mystics of today, or what some people would say you can only apprehend at the phenomenological level. So what cannot be expressed? What can't be expressed is digital data and what can't be expressed um, relatedly as financial value. So that's what I've been working on as an academic. I've also been exploring the ways that digital media inform our approaches to scientific methodology. How do the new affordances of data science, specifically meaning artificial intelligence, automation, AI, and so on, how do they change the way that we think about scientific knowledge specifically, but on a broader level, knowledge in general, what knowledge means, and the unspoken tacit curiosity behind that is how do our technological affordances change the way that we think about knowledge and meaning specifically? Mm. Um, And is there a way in which um, new digital technologies can show to us the limits of our quote-unquote rational methods. So scientific hypothesis testing, you come up with a hypothesis, you attempt to disprove it, and so on. Um, That in and of itself is a relatively new intellectual invention. Um, So are digital technologies pushing us in a direction where we have to think differently about the meaning of science? And then reflexively, if we can put those two worlds into dialogue and say, hey, data science is now allowing correlation to become equivalent to causation, for example. Mm. What does this mean about the way that we think about knowledge and the way that um, our technologies kind of come before rather than after um, what we believe to be authoritative knowledge, authoritative meaning? So... Those are, that's a, a bit of the territory that I'm trying to map, drawing on a number of different thinkers. And then in a whole other realm that mm-hmm. I'm beginning to weave together with all of what I just said, I'm interested in the idea of acid communism as developed by the cultural critic Mark Fisher and a number of um, contemporary scholars. Acid communism being a mode of political practice and a political theorization that looks to the uh, countercultural projects of the 1960s to serve as inspiration for what we're doing today. And that's the extremely simple, crude version, and Mm -hmm. we can potentially get into the weeds of that. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good terrain to chart out. That's quite a a landscape. Um, And it's always so fascinating. It's one of the reasons I was so excited to, to talk today is to have some kind of vision and focus that on one hand is interested in that kind of, uh, you know, the mystical terrain, the ineffable kind of precognitive, pre-linguistic areas of experience that are difficult to translate, and then mapping all the way through that to uh, data, to technology, to capital, the ways that it kind of manifests or reifies or doesn't um, in the world. Mm-hmm. But one of, one of the other reasons I was so excited to have this conversation is because I think that your work picks up at a point where a previous conversation of mine actually left off. Um, a couple episodes back, I spoke with the intellectual historian Barnaby Rain about the relationship between capitalism kind of writ large and subjectivity. So looking at the ways that 
aspects of capitalist society construct or co-construct or more technically create the evolutionary environments within which consciousness evolves and becomes the thing or the phenomena that we experience it as. And we focused on the period kind of starting in about the 1700s with Jean-Jacques Rousseau all the way through to about 1980 with Michel Foucault. And that, that period spans a number of different forms of capitalism, but notably it leaves off right around where the next phase begins to kick in, um, one that we're still kind of wrangling with today. And there are about a million different labels that are used for it. There's digital capitalism, cognitive capitalism, the age of surveillance capitalism, hypercapitalism, so on. But the basic idea, as I understand it, is that there was this explosion in digital technologies and platforms. Uh, what Shoshana Zuboff calls you know, new laws of accumulation began to kick in, most notably that the commodification of data became an immensely profitable industry. And with, with all of the dynamics that were charted out prior to digital capitalism, the different ways that particular economic practices and institutions kinds of influenced and altered consciousness, it seems that the most recent phase here has kind of amplified and intensified that that connection between the economic landscape of our lives on one hand and the landscape of, of consciousness on the other. So one of the early questions I wanted to ask you to kind of help chart out this, this most recent phase of capitalism a bit more is what role you see technology and or data um, playing in this kind of ongoing saga between economics and consciousness. If, if technology and data are ushering in this new situation where there are kind of distinctive effects on what human subjectivity both is and, and becomes, how do we begin to make sense of, of that dynamic and the role they play in that? That's a great question. I think to begin to answer the question, I'd have to explain a bit about how I think about the relationship between data and capital. Hmm. So when I say the word data, I'm referring very specifically to digital data that is computable within our binary computing systems. And I say that because I've, I've given conference talks and I've um, taught a number of classes and people still have quite a bit of slippage between the more expansive definition of data, which might mean knowledge in any uh, medium. So you can go out into the woods with a pencil and a sheet of paper and make observations about the birds and your gathering data. Um, what, I, what I mean by data is specifically computable integers, bits and bytes. And that matters because there is an ontological likeness between computable data as discrete, irreducible components, particles, and capital, which is, you know, it's, it's dollars, it's euros, but fundamentally what capital is, is a medium of exchange. It's a medium for exchange, whatever we think of as capital, whether it's um, a coin in your purse or a cryptocurrency token, the point is that it can be exchanged and that it can flow freely across, um, across the world through various circuits and so on and so forth. So data and capital function in a very similar fashion. They're both meant to be exchanged, uh, you know, as the computer culture cliche would have it, information. <laughs> wants to be free. Um, so in a lot of ways, digital data is a perfect form 
for capital. I've been doing a lot of research which takes as predicate the fact that data are non-rivalrous economic goods. And what that means is that they can accrue uh, without their value diminishing and they can be produced at very minimal um, labor or material input cost. Basically, no input cost whatsoever if you put aside the whole issue of the environmental costs of computing, which right. that's a huge conversation, but theoretically speaking, I'm just going to compartmentalize that for now. So because they are non-rivalrous and at least in theory permit the infinite uh, accumulation, their, their own infinite accumulation, I think of the age of data as truly a new age of capitalism because data are extremely valuable and as digital objects um, gain in value and as our world becomes more suffused with data, it's also becoming more suffused with capital. Um, of course, that value is only enriching a small stratum of the people who are actually producing that data, but that's the background. So data are being generated at exponentially ex accelerating rates. We are doing all of this work. And when I say we, I mean everybody who uses a computer, in particular, everybody who's using a computer that's connected to the internet and doing online things. All of the data that we generate uh, is either commodified or is susceptible to becoming a commodity. So, any search term that I might type into Google, whatever I tweet, uh, if I'm using any number of platform services, uh, both the data that I'm generating and the metadata, so information about when I'm computing, you know, my various demographic markers, my inferred gender, my inferred which, unless I've specifically given that information out, all of that is extremely valuable. We are extremely online. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what does that do to us? I think that it is changing us at a pre-reflexive cognitive level. And I say that with some trepidation because my background is in critical theory, where mm -hmm. making scientific statements about the mind is verboten, um, or at least if you say something about how the mind works or how the mind should works, you have to qualify that you're not doing so in a normative fashion. You're not mm. saying this is what a healthy mind looks like and this is the negative effects of using too much social media or playing too many video games and so on and so forth because you don't want to accidentally reinforce some agenda that is being filtered through the veil of quote-unquote objective science. So I've been struggling with this throughout my career, um, but I, I've arrived at a place relatively recently, actually, where I'm getting more comfortable expressing these things in scientific terms and just kind of figuring out how to do that. But um, I'm not a cognitive scientist. I'm not a neuroscientist. But reading in these literatures, I absolutely do think that using digital technologies um, changes something about the way that we think. I actually draw on 
philosopher Gilles Deleuze and his collaborator Félix Guattari's notion of the image of thought to explain what is happening to thinking in the age of digital capitalism. Now, the image of thought is a theory. They wouldn't say it's a theory. They would say it's, you know, pre-theoretical even, but it's, it's an entity that, in their words, thought gives itself of what it means to think, which seems hopelessly abstruse and like circular reasoning. But it's, I mean, in a, a more accessible way, we could probably just say that whatever we think thinking is, you know, you might think that thinking is what you're doing when you're trying to come up with an idea for an essay, if you're a college student or a writer, or um, you're thinking through some life problem. Okay, that's thinking. But also dreaming is thinking, arguably feeling, I think is very much uh, a form of thinking, passively receiving information, quote unquote, passively watching TV, any mental activity whatever we um whatever boundaries we put on this idea of what thinking is that's our image of thought and it's not necessarily what we'd say to ourselves thinking is like hmm. i don't know if i went to one of my philosophy colleagues and i said give me 10 activities that count as thinking they'd probably be able to rattle off a few it's something that perhaps we also know at the intuitive level um, something that we wouldn't be able to fully express to ourselves, but it's the predicate, the a priori for thinking. That's the image of thought. And there are as many different images of thoughts as there are thinkers or perceiving, sensing, apprehending minds. So Deleuze and Guattari identify various images of thought in the works of philosophers who have commented on the nature of thinking from Plato to Descartes to Heidegger. And drawing on that, just as a, a proposition, um, I think it's useful to think about a digital image or what I call a data image of thought that transforms our intuitions about thought in such a way that accommodates the digitalization of thought, um, that makes thought more readily exchangeable or translatable into digital formats. And when thought can be digitized, it can become a commodity more readily. So it's the um, commodification of consciousness through digital means. I guess that would be the simple way of putting it, which is not so simple, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, all right, there's a lot there I want to get into, and a lot of that is, is good kind of introductory context we can, we can drill into further. But before getting too far from it, I wanted to uh, delineate specifically a little more about uh, digital capitalism, and I pulled out a quote from uh, Jan Mulia Boateng, who I think you've you've drawn from as well. And he wrote, "We can distinguish three principal configurations in the history of capitalism: first, mercantile capitalism, which was based on the hegemony of mechanisms of merchant and finance accumulation and developed between the start of the 16th century and the end of the 17th." Next came industrial capitalism, which was based on the accumulation of physical capital and the driving role of the large Manchester-style factory in mass-producing standardized goods. And then came cognitive capitalism, which is founded on the accumulation of immaterial capital, the dissemination of knowledge, and the driving role of the knowledge economy. In, in this context, it, does it make sense? Is the immaterial capital 
that he's talking about. Is that data? Is data kind of that function there? That's actually a really interesting question to ask. Is, is digital capitalism a form of immaterial capitalism? On the one hand, of course, data have no perceptible properties. You can't touch them. You can't smell them. In that sense, they are immaterial. But they're very much material in that they are reified. They're reified abstractions of quantia, um, of numbers, essentially, because in order to be computable, uh, a bit of information has to follow a specific mathematical rule. It has to be discrete, meaning it can only contain a finite number of mathematical variables, whereas continuous, which is in this sense the opposite of discrete, means that it can contain a theoretically infinite number of variables within itself. So data is materialized mathematical abstraction. I actually don't think it's useful to say that data are material or immaterial, and by extension that um, digital capitalism is one or the other. In fact, I think that takes the emphasis off a primary mechanism of digital capitalism, which is to render the material as immaterial and vice versa. Um, There's a scholar whose work I've drawn on immensely. Um, His name is Eugene Thacker, and he wrote a book, I believe it was published in 2005, called The Global Genome, which looks at the science of genomics and essentially makes an argument that genomic science is something of a rhetorical construction that advances various hegemonic forces. The big and overarching one being capitalism. And he has this great passage about how the aim of the biotechnology industry is to render organic, bloody, goozy, wet, biological life, blood and guts, as immaterial, as virtual, by modeling various components in computer simulations and in what they call dry labs that only deal with software images, you know, strands of DNA modeled and so on and so forth. And to assert the immateriality of the body while simultaneously asserting the materiality of information and basically to expedite a sort of fluid lability um, between the material and the immaterial realm that um, both at the level of software and our technological capacities um, allows for more high fidelity modeling and interchange between wet organic life and dry digital life, but also to cultivate a shift in the way that we think about all, all matter and all material so that it can all hypothetically be digitized so that um, one day the operations of our wet brains and our skulls can completely be modeled and simulated. And that will be the day that we have um, what they call general AI, which is the idea of AI that absolutely thinks and cognizes in the same way as a human being. Mm-hmm. So I'd call it digital capitalism or data capitalism and realize that data performs this sleight of hand where all of a sudden, uh, 
any distinction that we might make between what can or cannot occupy a digital format disappears and materiality and immateriality are no longer uh, important categories. And we, we need to stop thinking in those two terms if we're going to theorize this properly and understand what's really going on with data capitalism. But I do agree with uh, Jan Milje Betong that we are in a, a new age of capitalism. And of course, various scholars have different terms and conceptualizations of it. Mm. Yeah, one way of, of thinking about, at least for me, the the digitization of subjectivity and what that means is that more and more of our conscious experience comes into contact with or is modulated by or seeks feedback from these kind of digital platforms and technologies. And they can only speak in the language of data, which is information theory, which is fundamentally massive scripts of binary zeros and ones. And so consciousness is increasingly expressed and influenced by and evolving via feedback from these kind of digital languages and environments. And you've done a lot of work, uh, including, I think, <laughs> your whole PhD dissertation, making the argument for the elements of human experience that cannot be translated into that language of, of zeros and ones, those kind of unruly, penumbral, wild, peripheral, but, but deeply human aspects of consciousness that cannot be represented or recreated within a system that operates in that language of data. You had some cool terms for that, like the idiosyncratic. So th there's something that, that gets lost, an aspect of consciousness that maybe atrophies or doesn't see the light of day in that, in that paradigm that um, is maybe isn't or cannot be recognized by those various digital interfaces. C could you speak a little bit more to this kind of mismatch or maybe this tension between what data is and what consciousness is and the, the consequences of their not being able to entirely map onto one another? Sure. I'm going to quote a scholar that I am no expert in, but I heard this quote out of context. So if you're a Lacan scholar, my apologies. <laughs> <laughs> the quote is that form is the aporia of the real, or form is the opposite of the real. That which takes form somehow debases whatever the real or reality is. Mm -hmm. And I like that because it summarizes a lot of what I've been assuming, I think, as I've proceeded along this line of inquiry. I don't have specific words or theories to explain what it is that cannot take the form of data, either in terms of subjective human experience or non-human experience and non-human phenomenologies. I suspect that the characteristics of that are a bit different for every conscious being, but I believe, and I've argued on behalf of the belief that manifestation, reification, is only ever a partial view of whatever it appears to transmit or represent fully. So for example, Google knows a lot about me. Anyone who uses Google on a regular basis can go to the Google ad settings page and look at the various bits of information about themselves that um, Google has inferred. So what their favorite sports team is, or you know, if they even have a favorite sports team, um, their favorite genres of music, Google will guess your age and so on. And someone might come along and say, wow, that's 
uncannily accurate. There are 50 different markers there for my self. And yeah, that, that pretty much gets it. They even know that I'm really into 1970s Zambian psychedelic rock or something <laughs> like that. I don't think their categories are quite that refined, but that's the idea. <laughs> That'd be impressive. That would be, yeah, scary. <laughs> um, you can you can express the self in much higher definition. I can do a full body scan using the most advanced sensing technology and offer that along with the diaries I've kept since I was eight years old, along with everything that I've ever done in the capacity of being a scholar and all of my text messages with all of my loved ones and friends. That can all be digitized, but it's not collectively a representation of myself in full and anybody who's drawn towards the study of consciousness, the deep study of the self, I think would know exactly what I mean when I say that. So we're in an age now where people are pressured to constantly express themselves and self-actualize through digital formats, also through non-digital formats. We are very much under pressure to become our best selves and live fully actualized lives, at least in some parts of the world and in some economic milieus. Obviously, not everybody in the world, not most people perhaps, but um, certainly the circles that I've been concerned with, I think that's, that's a real issue. And it's advancing or it's concealing that more mystical or contemplative understanding of both the self and reality in general, which is whatever becomes debased once it takes form, once there's a word for it, once there's an image for it. And if it has to follow a standard form, um, for example, the standard form of digital media, of the technical requirements of computability, it very much changes something about it. And instead of attaining at a, a theory of what that mystical, ineffable thing is, I'm interested in the nature of the change, um, the, the technical nature of datification, um, digitization. Those two terms, by the way, I've used them interchangeably. Different scholars actually think that they mean different things, and that's kind of interesting. But yeah, and I've called that principle the idiosyncratic, specifically in the context of psychedelic drug research, where my argument in my doctoral dissertation was that psychedelics heal by drawing out the idiosyncratic, which is a, a sine qua non in every person that somehow degrades, um, that in certain pathological conditions, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, it is not so robust a part of their daily mental, emotional functioning. It's very difficult to say this with simply the language of philosophy, because really all that I'm saying is there's an ineffable something in people that psychedelics draw out, and that's what helps them recover from alcoholism after 
you know, five LSD trips and psychotherapy is, is that something that just comes out. But putting my philosophical background into dialogue with um, studies in computer science and also studies in psychiatry and neuroscience and cognitive science, there are a number of interesting overlaps where the empirical research meets the theory and ways of expressing that non-manifest, idiosyncratic something in people that, to me, isn't just about what happens under um, conditions of a, an LSD trip, but is very much a part of all healthy functioning, I would say. Hmm. Yeah, so a lot to pull out there. You're you're mentioning this kind of interplay between uh, form and formlessness, which will be you know very familiar to contemplatives and, and psychedelic people, I think. Um, but it's really interesting the way this kind of interfaces with data and with a phrase that you use a lot, I'd like to ask you to, to help us understand called digital positivism. Mm -hmm. It sounds to me like one of, one of the, the ways to describe what is happening is that we have better and better capabilities of kind of putting different aspects of ourselves uh, to, and informing them, right? Putting them into form. And we can instrumentalize these things. We can use them. So you can use data about you know, your workout to optimize your heart rate variability. You can use all of these things. And there's, you actually use this phrase, they're situationally useful in, in different contexts. And that's great. And that the more and more we are able to inform various aspects of ourselves, um, the more kind of far off that formlessness goes to the point where we, we feel that that which is expressed via data is good enough. That's a good enough representation. And the formlessness, since it's so slippery and difficult and yada, yada, it, it almost um, doesn't exist, right? We, we kind of develop into this paradigm where that which is expressed via data exists and that which cannot be does not. Um, you, you had a, a title to one of your sections in your dissertation called, um, if it doesn't exist on the internet, <laughs> it doesn't really exist, um, which kind of expresses that idea. But is that the general idea of digital positivism? What does that mean? Well, Positivism is a theory developed by August Comte, one of the founders of the discipline of sociology, working uh, right at the beginning of the Enlightenment and in trying to get away from theological approaches to epistemology, the sense that we can look to a god or a ruler who would claim divine authority and corroborating knowledge. Comte's innovation was to say that knowledge should be considered authoritative only if multiple different parties can witness it and confirm it. So you might see the sky change from blue to pink in a moment of ecstatic meditative transcendence, something like that. But if you can't do that again with five people all in the same room as you confirming, yes, the sky changes from blue to pink if you've been meditating for 12 hours or something like that, <laughs> then we can't say it's really knowledge. So that's positivism. It's knowledge by uh, consensus reality by proof of consensus reality and the capacity to be verified 
in multiple different contexts by multiple different parties. It's knowledge as that which is manifest and capable of confirmation. Digital positivism is the idea that what is authoritative information is that which can be expressed in digital formats. And taking it a step further into today's online milieus, that what matters, what matters epistemologically, meaning, you know, what is the sort of knowledge that we should be paying attention to, but also what matters in a looser sense of, you know, what sorts of news stories are the most important, what aspects of ourselves are the most important, are those which gain the most traction online or those which uh, most readily accommodate sharing, both in the sense of sharing through social media or swift translation into digital formats. So it's easy to take a picture of your face and, you know, put it on your computer and then put it onto an internet network. You can't quite take a picture of your dreams or the fact that your heartbeat increases in response Mm. to a certain stimulus, even though the images you see in your dreams are real in a certain way. There's a reason that you can remember them and that you clearly identify people in your dreams and so on and so forth. Obviously, your heart rate is as quote unquote real as your face in the normal scientific sense. But because those objects do not accommodate digitization and sharing quite so well, they would not be considered as meaningful in the digital positivist framework. Yeah, that makes sense. So there's an abundance of passages that one could pick out to highlight people's concerns over, you know, what the new digital environment is doing to psychology. But one in particular um, from the philosopher of consciousness, Thomas Metzinger, um, has an aspect that I'd like to pull out. So he writes, the internet has already become a part of our self-model. We use it for external memory storage, as a cognitive prosthetic, and for emotional auto-regulation. Clearly, the integration of hundreds of millions of human brains into ever-new medial environments has already begun to change the structure of conscious experience itself. Today, the advertisement and entertainment industries are attacking the very foundations of our capacity for experience, drawing us into the vast and confusing media jungle. We can see the probable results in the the epidemic of attention deficit disorder in children and young adults, in midlife burnout, in rising levels of anxiety. And here's, here's where I think it gets really interesting. New medial environments may create a new form of waking consciousness that resembles weakly subjective states a mixture of dreaming, dementia, intoxication, and infantilization. And it's this last element, his kind of critique of this sort of digitized subjectivity, is that it creates new forms of waking consciousness that he calls weakly subjective states. And I'm conjecturing here, but it sounds like he implies a sort of uh, spectrum from weak to strong, weak to vivid, and that there's a kind of Uh, gradient of vitality that applies to the way in which we experience our own consciousness. And I've been wondering if this is one of those areas that's difficult to uh, study methodologically, one of those dimensions that's difficult or maybe impossible to render, you know, via binary code, this kind of gradient of of vitality, um, because we don't really have neural correlates for it. It's it's mostly or entirely a, a subjectively felt quality. On the other hand, then I kind of push back on myself 
um, to present the counter argument, I was speaking with, for example, um, the neuroscientist Eric Coel recently, and he's done a lot of work on a, a theory of consciousness called integrated information theory. And, and that theory actually proposes that it can measure the volume of information that's course, coursing through a neural network, and that the more information that's being processed, the more consciousness there is. And this kind of establishes something of a, a spectrum of consciousness from less to more. And I can imagine someone trying to make the leap to claim that you know, less consciousness, less information being processed is subjectively experienced as a weak subjective state, whereas higher information volumes are experienced as kind of more vivid or, or full of vitality. Now, I'm, I'm not sure how well the total volume of consciousness can serve as a proxy for that kind of subjectively experienced vitality, but I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on this on this sense or this dimension of vitality as one of those tricky dimensions that, that may or may not be able to render via data. There's a lot going on in that question. <laughs> um, there are so many parts that I want to pick up on. First of all, it's good that you're talking about methodology. Right when you started, I began to think about a problem with making the claim that digital media are affecting us at the mental level, which is that right now you can only make that claim through correlation rather than causation because it's an incredibly difficult, impossible really, thing to study through the means of a hypothesis test. Mm. I also am bristling at the notion that consciousness exists on a hierarchical spectrum of more to less. Mm. <laughs> um, on the one hand, that seems to make sense. Everybody knows what it's like to feel groggy, to feel diminished, to not feel as alert, and so on. On the other hand, what consciousness is to me is fundamentally not something that you can quantify in any, you know, any dimension of consciousness, whether you would I don't know, separate out speed of thinking as compared to intensity of emotion. So those mm. could be two variables that you measure for or that you can control for in some imaginary test. There may be various axes or vari variables of consciousness that you can isolate and run tests on. In fact, I'm sure anyone with a background in neuroscience or the cognitive sciences would be listening to this and saying, well, we do this sort of stuff all the time. But immediately, that sentiment from Metzinger, whose work I'm only vaguely familiar with, um, that strikes me as a little bit reductive. And I'm sure there's more to it than that, the way that he lays that out. There's also the idea that you may be familiar with, which is the idea of the reducing valve of consciousness or the reducing valve mm -hmm. theory of consciousness, which says that we have more vivid experiences when certain parts of our neurological system is diminished. Uh, so I'm drawing on the bits and pieces of neuroscience I'm familiar with. I think it's the DNS, which that's an acronym that I can't quite remember what that stands for. But basically, um, it's a circuit in the brain that tends to diminish, um, its functionality tends to diminish under psilocybin and LSD-induced inebriation. 
And when it weakens, some parts of our processing are inhibited, which actually allows for more vivid and more phenomenologically robust subjective experience. So on the one hand, there's reduced brain activity, and then it's felt as an increase in consciousness, which is all to say that I don't think it's that simple. I'm not, you know, I don't Mm, know that there's a, a spectrum of conscious experience, but I also think it's worth studying from a scientific perspective. Even though we may not be able to attain to as robust a theory of the mind as we have of gravity, for example, because we're studying ourselves and we really can't ever be fully objective or attain to a full consensus on the nature of subjective experience. At the very least, finding the language for it, the scientific language for it, and putting that scientific language into conversation with social or cultural um, frameworks of mind and self can get us to, if not a more accurate reading of what it means to have experiences or what subjectivity and consciousness really mean, we can at least frame it in a way that makes sense to us today, that speaks to our modern scientific sensibilities and highlights conditions that more and more people seem to relate to. Um, burnout, depression, anxiety, trauma, depression related to an extremely online life. Uh, I think there's an interest in what happens to our mind when we are using the internet for 12, 13 hours a day that has been growing and growing, especially after the pandemic when everybody was online all the time. I suppose that's still true for a lot of people. So this kind of literature, I think, is gaining traction. And even if we're not approaching the truth, so to speak, we're finding a way of talking about it that helps people understand themselves and their individual and our shared condition that can actually change the way that we live or that can affect our behaviors and perhaps have a, a ripple effect into the way that we relate to each other and the way that we think about the societies that we're building. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that you said makes me think when you were talking about um, kind of the the strange seeming paradox that sometimes reduced um, brain function or activity in particular networks leads to more vivid or kind of a you know, distinct experiences. That was something that, uh, for example, Chris Letheby or Robin Carhart Harris, people are doing a lot of kind of the front edge mm-hmm. uh, research in the cognitive science of psychedelics. Chris was explaining to me that one of the things they find in psilocybin, LSD, mescaline, is that it reduces activity um, in both the default mode network and the salience network and mm-hmm. of the brain. And these kind of pertain to different modes of selfhood, the, the, the theory goes. And that when you take the psychedelics, one of the things that they do by dampening activity in those networks is relaxing the, the beliefs that kind of are operating in our, you know, they, they go by a predictive processing system that cognition is, is kind of this this uh, back and forth between predictive processing and cognitive binding and these hierarchical models. But the basic idea being that if psychedelics relax the beliefs that are kind of fundamental to the, the ways that our brains predict experience, when you relax those beliefs, you can actually have a, a larger kind of phenomenological space or a, a hypothesis space, a possibility space. Your brain can actually kind of consciously entertain possibilities that 
when it was under kind of stricter control of those beliefs, it wouldn't even entertain because it rules them out as logically impossible. And it, it strikes me as interesting that maybe there's some kind of relationship between maybe what, what Metzinger I was trying to get at with the idea of vitality maps onto something of novelty because in these spaces when you relax a predictive processing mechanism and you have a, a larger kind of hypothetical possibility space there's a lot of novelty you're experiencing things that usually are ruled out phenomenologically and i wonder if there's a sense in which those novel experiences themselves are experienced as kind of a, a heightened state or, or a more vivid state and it might not have anything to do with the spectrum but just the fact that uh, novelty registers that way i'm not sure Yes. So that work from Chris Latheby and Robin Carhart-Harris is precisely what I was referring to. And I guess that's the default mode network. I don't know why I use the term. DNS. Or maybe <laughs> well, isn't that an internet phrase? It's yeah, that's, you know, <laughs> these things get into my mind at the subliminal yeah. level. And then I use HTML to refer to 50 different things that have <laughs> nothing to do with computers, because that's the world I'm in like 80% of the time. Yeah. So that, um, interdisciplinarity, folks. <laughs> yes. So I think it's actually really interesting. I, I agree with you. I think that um, when the default mode network is diminished, it allows for the relaxation of those uh, prior beliefs, those deeply ingrained like grooves on a record that as you get older are so um, so deeply entrenched in your consciousness that you don't even know they're there and you can't quite grasp what it was like to not have them, like to be a child or an adolescent anymore. They become your predicate for everything that you see in the world. And if they are diminished or dissolved even temporarily, those experiences of novelty that you might have in that um, that more open state, they're probably experienced as more vivid, vibrant um, consciousness or subjectivity and, and whatnot. This is an interesting point to connect with digital media and specifically um, data capitalism. And I'm sorry to take this in a totally woo-woo direction, but this is no, really... We love this is what really excites me, and I'm going to test this out here because cool. surely what I'll say or the way I'll say it wouldn't quite pass muster in an academic paper, and I'll have to figure out a re-articulation for anything I might publish in the future. <laughs> but um, but I'll, I'll figure out a way to do it. But for now, Chris Leatherby talks about the theory of self through predictive processing, where we experience ourselves as stable entities in time through anticipating what we will be like in the future based on what we're like now and what we were in the past. Obviously, this isn't something that we're doing deliberately. It happens at a pre-reflexive level. That checks out to me intuitively when I was first reading about these ideas, and I've been reading Lethaby's work for a long time. We know who we are. We are the same person on a day-to-day -day basis because we know who we were yesterday and three years ago, and so on and so forth. Hmm. At the moment, we are in an economic system that increasingly works by speculative means. The algorithms that pervade our digital environment work by predicting user behavior um, and also predicting the growth of industries 
by showing us content that they believe we'll interact with, whether that's a movie on Netflix or an advertisement on a social media platform. And in the age of financialization, where so much of industry is determined by investment, guessing at the future based on what's happening now and what has happened in the past, it's creating a socioeconomic future in the image of, of what is a safe bet based on the past. So at the individual level, I think um, interacting with predictive models, predictive models extrapolated from big data, it does lock us into an experiential reality that preempts change or at least works against profound internal psychological change. And this is also happening at the societal level where the economy is planning itself in advance. Everybody talks about communism as a planned economy and how terrible that is because we can never innovate or change anything if we're you know, under a communist economic system. But that principle is very much at play in capitalism. It has been for a long time and it's getting worse with the confluence of digital capitalism and financial investment capitalism, which is an older form. Those two modes of capitalism are converging at the moment to create a future that reinforces the past. So I've just jumped from a highly individual account of selfhood based on predictive processing to an account of society, which works essentially by the same mechanism. And if we're going to radically change ourselves as individuals, if we're going to radically change society, we have to understand that that is a force that is working against that change. That's that's really interesting. And uh, it reminds me of one of the things that um, I spoke about with with Chris was that on one hand, um, these priors that we have that either our predictive processing models are kind of predicated upon, or even if you go to algor- algorithms, the kind of data you feed, uh, the machine learning that kind of gets reified in, in future models, that on one hand, there are these problems, there are these concerns. On the other hand, um, they're also enabling. He had a, a line that I forget, but it's something like, you know, prior knowledge is always both enabling and constricting. And that fundamentally, there's probably some kind of balance that we want to be able to strike between kind of the the affordances of being able to um, have these priors that are essentially um, so well known that we don't have to expend energy on considering them. We kind of take them as givens. Um, whereas on the other hand, if we get kind of over-determined or over-indexed on those priors, like you say, we shut ourselves off from the the possibility for kind of meaningful structural change. And I mean, this certainly maps onto Mark Fisher's work, who you mentioned in the beginning with acid communism. As I'm sure you know, this is basically his hypothesis with capitalist realism that one of the kind of phenomenological consequences of neoliberal capitalisms in the period that began around the early 1970s has been the kind of ongoing structural erosion of our capacity to even imagine alternatives, right? Not to enact, it's not that we have trouble implementing them, it's that we we cannot even hypothesize them in the first place. They're not included within the set of possible worlds that get kind of entertained on a conscious level. And that maps really interestingly, if you go 
I feel like we're oscillating back and forth and I love it between society and, and like individual psychedelic. But if you go back to the individual model, one of the theories going around with why psychedelics are so helpful for things like anxiety, things like depression, is because in a lot of these conditions, you have, um, you're have you very kind of locked in or over-indexed to particular patterns that constrain you and hold you. And that what the psychedelics do by loosening your priors is allow you to step out of those patterns in a way that um, then through kind of a careful process of integration, you can um, adjust them. You can change the patterns. And then you always kind of settle back into some mode of selfhood. But that period of, of kind of ecstatic uh, transcendence of those patterns, however ephemeral, allows you to make sometimes very necessary, very, ther- I don't want to just say therapeutic because that kind of restricts the whole betterment of, of well people situation. But it, it, it's it's very healing in, in in many dimensions, and I really like the the parallel you draw there between them. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, there's a lot to say. First of all, capitalism truly is a conservative system, not in the sense of social conservatism, because you don't necessarily need to be socially or culturally conservative to be a capitalist. We we see this mm-hmm. all the time with libertarians and so on who have really far out social and cultural ideas but are extremely economically conservative. Um, Capitalism is conservative in the sense that it depends on the accumulation but also the preservation of a prior, um, either in the sense of individual wealth or the sustenance of a certain status quo that helps everybody maintain their individual wealth or realistically a small number of people retain some individual wealth. It's based on the idea that you're always going to be acting in the interest of your future self based on what you already have. For example, the accumulation of credit and the assumption that You will always be working towards increasing your credit score, even if that means making a certain decision financially that's not the best for you in this particular moment. Um, Homo economicus. It's always wanting to preserve something in the past, that prior. That's not necessarily a bad principle to cultivate and wish to defend and preserve something in your life, whether that's money or alternatively relationships and education to work towards something that you would really not like to lose. It's a good thing to have things that you want to hold on to. The other side of the spectrum is the absolutely chaotic, I would say full-on, psychedelic immediacy of reconsidering all of your priors, uh, revisiting basic relationships, the question of whether you want to have so many material objects in your home, whether you really need that much money in your bank account, or could you not just give it all away or walk away from the relationships that you've built up with loved ones to try to experience different kinds of relationships with different kinds of people and break off what you already have. Um, Those are two extremes. The idea of acid communism suggests that we have leaned too far in the direction of the former extreme of conservatism 
preservation, the idea that we can not only accumulate more and more for ourselves as individuals that we'll want to defend and not give away, but that this can happen ad infinitum and that in theory, everybody can have as much money as they can possibly make, that everyone can be a billionaire. Obviously, that's not true. It's never going to be true. Resources are not infinite, even though that is the lie that is unspoken, but that you would have to subscribe to to be a full-on capitalist. Um, So to shake ourselves out of that way of thinking and push ourselves toward the acid end of things, the psychedelic end of things, uh, what I just called chaotic in the sense of um, introducing change and entropy and differentiation, um, we need specific interventions. We need little shocks. Um, One way of doing that to yourself, to get yourself out of this way of conservative thinking might be to take psychedelics, you know, do a few trips on acid, try to integrate them and process them in a specific way that makes you more open to change as an individual, that helps you see yourself in a radically new light. People who are depressed absolutely need that. I I subscribe to that theory of depression that both at the level of cause and effect, depressed people may understand that they can be different, that their lives can be different, that the best days of their lives may as yet lie ahead of them. They may get that at the intellectual level, but not at the level of emotion or um, integrated subjectivity, a a fluidity between thought and feeling, uh, that anything that is new or um, vibrant to them is not something they can access at the emotional level. So they could certainly benefit from psychedelic interventions or people who are older, and I, I'm not trying to be ageist, but um, <laughs> y- you know, yeah. as you get older, your thinking really does fall into that lock groove that I was just talking about. So I think psychedelics, they're not wasted on the young per se, but their potential for older people who may be more stuck is really interesting. Um, mm. So we can look at that at the level of the individual. We could also apply that to society. And I I believe, and this is very much in the spirit of acid communism, along with some of the the work of others you've had on this podcast, like Catherine Gibson, I think that personal change and sociopolitical change are interdependent. And we do need to work on ourselves as individuals and in small localized communities to affect a broader change. But... Um, that theory of predictive processing, of pitching ourselves virtually into the future to sustain the present and the past, and how we can break out of that, that absolutely applies, um, yeah, individually and at a, a much broader level. And it's a really interesting territory to explore. Yeah. I mean, personally, I love exploring kind of the idea of um, moving from that kind of individual level to what does it mean to think about that at the kind of structural and, and social level? For example, um, so I, I think it was John Vervecchio speaking with, but the idea of what does it mean to think about economic policy as itself a kind of psychedelic intervention in the system? Um, and, and one thing that comes to mind is um, in David Graeber's book, you know, Debt, his massive history of debt, he had this and this kind of passage, it always stays with me, that a thousand something years ago, um, in kind of peasant societies, you would have 
they would still kind of accumulate all this debt. And when debtors came to collect the debt and the peasants didn't have anything to give, no collateral, they would uh, take, you know, whatever assets they had, but very little. So it actually wound up taking family members. And so when peasants went really deep into debt, in fear of literally losing their family members to debtors, they kind of move out, abandon their farms, go live on the outskirts of society in these little like desert caravans. And this would kind of happen and happen and more and more peasants would have to move out and move out. And this was bad for society on the whole. So every now and then the kings, the leaders of the area would, would declare a massive debt jubilee. They would say, everyone who is in debt, it's all wiped clean. Everyone come back, start the cycle over again. And this was an ongoing, you know, periodic process. It was just part of how it worked that every now and then you had to wipe the slate clean because of the accumulation. And if, if you kind of apply that principle, I think in, in modern times, I've really been interested in the work of uh, Lauren Berlant, her work on affect theory, cruel optimism. And she kind of develops this idea that one of the distinctive kind of phenomenological traits of the neoliberal era is, and this kind of includes the kind of area of, of digital capitalism we've been talking about, is this notion of precarity that for one of the first times in the history of, of capitalism, um, ruling out before capitalism here, because then things get tricky, but that from 1970 onwards, the, the degree of kind of generalized precarity actually began increasing. And then you have um, someone like Guy Standing who's written a book to you know, say that we need to develop a new language for this class called the precariat, an entire socioeconomic class of people whose lives are defined by precarity. And, and to me, this, this rise of precarity is, is very much tied in with Fisher's notion of, of um, capitalist realism with kind of keeping people indexed in, into their priors, making it more difficult to engage in these kinds of exploratory measures. And one of the ways that I think about combating that, I go back to um, Henry George. I, I love Henry George, political economist, writing in the late 1800s. And he has this way, he had this passage of how he defined progress. I don't remember it, but it was something like, you know, progress is the accumulation, the rising soil beneath our feet that everyone is kind of lifted up by. And one of the ways that I think about that in, in terms of today is kind of the increasing the amount of unconditional resources that we all have access to. So if you think about something like uh, universal health care, if you think about something like basic income, these are, these are policies that provision us resources without requiring kind of point of service payment. You don't have to go onto the market, get a paycheck in order to purchase it. It's just part of the kind of condition of being a citizen of this society. And um, that's not something that we could always afford, but kind of as capitalism progresses, I mean, even Marx thought, you know, capitalism might stink in many ways, but it's a necessary kind of path to get to communism via the accumulation of resources, that the more we kind of have this unconditional accumulation of resources beneath our feet, the more realistic, the more possible it is for us to kind of engage in, the, in these kind of um, open exploratory ways of thinking to try new things It kind of cushions the risk. And so the great irony is that by kind of having the opposite of that happen over the past 50 years, by having rising precarity instead, this kind of increased state of market dependence, um, we've actually had the opposite of that. So I, I tend to think of a lot of these kind of policies as one way of kind of literally psychedelically in that you're changing the environments from which the mind is manifested, from which consciousness develops by changing those kind of pervasive dynamics that kind of define uh, the possibilities on an everyday level, if that makes any sense. That makes perfect sense. And going to the etymology of the word psychedelic, which means mind manifesting in the Greek, um, that's a, a great way of putting it because we need to make something manifest here and now. 
that's why it's important to talk about economic policies. I've been frustrated, admittedly, at the attempts among leftists to paint a picture of a post-capitalist society, saying, what will it look like once we are all on a UBI and, um, I don't know, the wealth is distributed much more evenly across the entire planet? What will our day-to-day life look like? What will farming look like? What will education, digital technology, and all that? Those speculative projects, to me, aren't as useful as they may seem, even though they're interesting because, well, if the idea of capitalist realism is that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism, why exactly is that? My premise is that capitalism can subsume anything that is intelligible anything that is thinkable. And that's why I've been so interested in what thought is, whether it's words that come out of our brains or the dreams that we have or sensoria. All of that can be translated into a financial commodity. It can be debased and um, take a form that may be assigned financial value without us being aware fully that it's being debased or being aware at all that, um, you know, our emotions now have a, a price tag, for example. So instead of thinking about what the future looks like, even though that may be fun and we can write science fiction about it, um, <laughs> we need to do something right now, even though we're not quite sure what the outcome may be. And that's what it is to take a psychedelic substance you go into it with a positive mindset. You're not quite sure what'll happen. You know that it's going to be extreme. You maybe tweak your surroundings a little bit to um, increase the likelihood that the immediate experience of it will be a pleasant one, but you're still not sure. And Mm. after the immediate stimulus, You try to frame it in a certain way that will benefit your non-psychedelic, quote-unquote, normal subjectivity after the mushrooms have worn off. Um, The same thing can be said for an immediate economic intervention. Um, And I say immediate in the sense of, you know, thinking in terms of our life as a a scale, you know, it doesn't need to happen tomorrow, but sure. Within our lifetime, we could look at experiments with a universal basic income or similar interventions that are risky. We'll take um, a calculated risk in implementing them, try to educate people about them or, you know, put other conditions in place to increase the likelihood that this will have the best possible outcomes But we need this now. You know, we're not going to be able to imagine the future and just build it without something that immediately changes the material conditions of the present. Psychedelics do that at the material level of our neurobiology. (laughs) Um, You know, if everybody at least had access to healthcare without having to worry about going into debt to pay for medicine, then um, that would 
that would change something. We're not quite sure what that world is going to look like on the other side, but my suspicion is that it would be a lot better for a lot of people. Yeah. Picking up on, on acid communism a bit, I think that one of the ways that I've seen it kind of boiled down a lot of the time is, uh, you know, the idea that, um, altered states of consciousness can be used to kind of galvanize movements for economic change or anti-capitalist movements. Um, but in reading his, his text, you know, he wrote about, what was it 20, 25 pages, um, that were meant as a kind of early introduction to the book. One of the aspects that I found most interesting was that it seemed he wanted to write a book as much about kind of understanding how that revolutionary consciousness of the 60s and 70s was, in his words, deflated, right? Understanding how neoliberal capitalism uh, tamed that revolutionary energy. And I I think that um, something like psychopower and a lot of what we've been talking about, he's talking about here have a place in that. But at at the end of, of his intro to acid communism, he references a zine that was written in 1977 by Franco Berardi, which I think it summed up the mood nicely back then. It was titled, uh, The Revolution is Just Possible and Necessary. Look, comrades, the revolution is probable. And then Fisher goes on to write, Of course, we now know that the revolution did not happen, but the material conditions for such a revolution are more in place in the 21st century than they were in 1977. What has shifted beyond all recognition since then is the existential and emotional atmosphere. Populations are resigned to the sadness of work, even as they are told that automation is making their jobs disappear. We must regain the optimism of the 70s moment, just as we must carefully analyze all the machineries of capital that were deployed to convert confidence into dejection. Understanding how this process of consciousness deflation worked is the first step to reversing it. And so kind of implicit in his idea of acid communism for me is almost this kind of subsidiary idea of acid capitalism, like a framework that seeks to understand capitalism itself as an already psychedelic system that has its own kind of distinctive effect on consciousness, right, that manifests and remanifests the human mind uh, from or in concert with a kind of socioeconomic setting that didn't have a, a dazzling, undulating kind of beatific effect on us, but rather the opposite, that the the trip we've been having is one of deflation and dulling down. Um, and, and for Fisher, you know, it seems he's concerned that we've grown resigned to this dull reality because we've come to mistake what is socially constructed and and changeable um, as natural and fixed. Um, And to spin that a little bit in your own work, as we touched on a little bit earlier, you make the case that psychedelics offer an empirical refutation to what we've called digital positivism. And that by taking kind of psychedelic science seriously, it should drive, drive us to change, to reform, to reconsider our methodologies. So I wanted to hone in a little bit to ask you, you know, what, what kinds of changes or reforms you have in mind here, right? How do we move beyond digital positivism or how do we kind of amend it, whatever needs to happen in a way that realigns our digital and political economy with a, a vision of human development that doesn't uh, almost literally turn us into robots, right? Or that doesn't shut down or nullify those idiosyncrasies that, that make us human. Well, we need to politicize our mental condition. And that was one among many projects that Mark Fisher was undertaking throughout his career. To step back for a second, I really like that framing, acid capitalism, because it's true. Capitalism is a psychedelic technology in the sense that 
it manifests the mind in a particular way. I've often wondered why so many people gravitate towards libertarianism. I've never understood the appeal of it, economic <laughs> level at least. I have tried to, I've, I've read Ayn Rand just out of curiosity. Yeah. Um, you know, and some other libertarian econo- uh, economists. And I really think that the appeal of libertarianism isn't so much socioeconomic as it is psychological because it speaks mm. to a principle of self-determination, sovereignty, actualization that everybody knows. Everyone knows what it feels like to be actualized. They may not quite put it like that. And libertarianism speaks to that, to the um, primacy of the individual as compared to our role as determined by society, our subject positions or interpolations um, that we have limited control over. Libertarianism putatively frees people from that and somehow connects it to economics. I think some people have actually experienced capitalism or they believe that they experience capitalism the way that we should experience a non-capitalist economic system. Hmm. Um, and they, they perhaps don't fully understand how the economy really works. That's a rather critical, even condescending thing to say, but that's my strongly anti-libertarian economic bias. <laughs> um, a point where acid communism actually interfaces with certain factions of the right wing, or at least the contemporary right wing, is in recognizing the mind as a site of political construction, or at least the mind as deeply influenced by um, political economy. I think there's a reason that so many people on the right uh, right now are interested in the work of Jordan Peterson and the psychological inquiries of Joe Rogan to get us towards a a psychedelic non-capitalism. We need to be more honest with ourselves or more realistic about the effects of continuous economic disenfranchisement on our psyches. To me, this became much more clear as I um, got older and progressed in my career and my financial circumstances changed in all sorts of ways for better and for worse from the age of 18 or 19 when I first went off to college to the present era. I'm in my early 30s. Um, looking at how my own financial situation changed what was possible for me in my life and also looking at the lives of a lot of people around me, close friends and you know some acquaintances who I just sort of saw how their lives evolved and also how they were writing about their lives, really posting about their lives through various internet forums. And it became crystal clear that a baseline of financial stability is absolutely necessary for decent mental health. (laughs) Um, I am not reducing certain psychological conditions, depression, anxiety, and so on to mere economic effects, 
But I am saying that they play a huge role in the way that people think and feel. And certainly we can't begin to think about collective organizing while everybody is, while a lot of people, not everybody's depressed. Sometimes it seems that way. <laughs> um, well, a lot of people are very, very tired, um, very sad, feeling very um, disenfranchised. It's a, it's a chicken and egg scenario where capitalism divests people of the basics that they need to flourish in, you know, in their own lives and to keep themselves well. And because they are not flourishing, they can't go above and beyond the activities uh, of their daily life simply to keep themselves and their families going. So yeah, politicizing mental health or the psychic condition, whatever you want to call it, mm. is a good place to start. The line between the economic prosperity of the post-war era going into the late 1960s and then what started to happen with deregulation, at least in the United States um, in the early 80s, yeah. you know, people identify a likeness between the end of the hippie era and a shift in mood and a shift in sensibility that they think was purely cultural. Like, oh, we realized that doing too much acid and going to too many rock festivals is completely reckless. And by the way, it's self-indulgent to just meditate all day long. And mm -hmm. that's why the hippie movement failed. And that's why um, we had to get away from it and all of that. But of course, at the same time, you know, at the end of the 1970s into the early 1980s, we had Ronald Reagan in the United States and Margaret Thatcher in the UK, uh, a completely new sensibility and attitude. Well, maybe not completely, but a reinforced um, embrace of capitalism took hold. And I think it undergirded that growing sentiment that there was nothing of serious political import in the hippie counterculture. By the way, I also want to make a point that maybe is not said enough in these discussions about acid communism, which is that we talk about the hippie counterculture of the 60s. That was also the seminal point for a lot of related movements that are still very influential to this day. Hmm. The LGBT liberation movement, um, the beginnings of contemporary feminism, yeah. the black liberation movement in the United States. So those were part of the hippie culture in a way, or at least they overlapped with them in many important ways. They were also in conflict with the hippie counterculture, but there are still reverberations and extremely important manifestations uh, socio-culturally, politically from that era that are tangible today, that continue to have a really tangible effect. You know, my, my frame of reference is the United States, but certain manifestations of Black Lives Matter, I think, are really directly um, linked to the Black Liberation Movement in the 1960s. And I actually think that um, making those connections is part of the Acid Communist Project as well. Yeah, that is really important because I think you're right. I think it's all too easy and, and that we get into this reductive frame of saying, you know, the hippie movement failed, it fizzled out, nothing came of it. But you're right, that's entirely incorrect. There were all of these kind of uh, networked movements that were drawing on a very similar energy that that are still at work today that I, I like uh, 
we should definitely emphasize that. Um, and and when you when you say that you know one of Fisher's themes was to politicize mental health, I always find it interesting. I read a book by um, Albert Hirschman recently called The Passions and the Interests, and he he went back to kind of like the 16th, 17th um, centuries, and he was looking at the discourses, like the early rumblings of capitalism. And he has this section where he says, you know, it's a common critique of capitalism nowadays, especially coming out of the Frankfurt School and Marcuse, to say, you know, the, the one-dimensional man critique that capitalism kind of, you know, cuts off and, and amputates all of these aspects of our personalities. It standardizes us into, um, oh, big truck into particular kinds of human beings that are very single, unidimensional. And Hirschman goes, it's not really fair to treat that as a critique because in the early days when we were developing capitalism, that was actually explicitly stated as precisely the point. He was like, the, the point of capitalism in those discourses was literally to kind of curtail certain uh, trajectories of development of the human personality because you know they were amidst like really violent outlashes of despotism and authoritarianism and fascism and they saw capitalism by kind of nullifying the human passions, by effectively distracting us, by having us focus on our interests. Um, it would kind of cut off those violent and dangerous tendencies. And so Hirschman goes, um, it, you know, it's important to keep that kind of historical context in mind. And I found that really interesting because when I was reading Fisher, um, this was before I'd, I'd read Hirschman, you know, this idea of politicizing mental health or talking about the way that something like capitalism interfaces not only with consciousness, but maybe you know, writ a little larger human development. Um, it sounded like a pretty radical idea, but then I went back and this was exactly the point. Like it was understood that the way that you kind of design this economic system is going to be directly kind of in conversation with the, the modes and the kinds of human development that ensue in that society. But, but one idea that I find really helpful in, and that I'm, I'm not as familiar with as I was reading your work and, and through that I was reading, um, you know, Bernard Stigler, people like that, um, this idea of psychopower. And I was reading a paper that said something like, um, you know, if the 20th century was the age of biopolitics, the 21st century it will be the age of psychopolitics. And psychopower, I think, is related, but not exactly, it's not the same as when we were talking about data or, or immaterial capital. So w what is psychopower and how, how do you see that at, at play? So to understand psychopower, you would need to understand the notion of biopower developed by the philosopher Michel Foucault. Biopower, in a nutshell, basically says that techniques for promoting health, whatever health means, reinforce the capitalist system of productivity. Uh, Foucault looks at the history of governance, um, starting in the 18th century, going into the 20th century when he was writing, and really considers why governments began to take an interest in the health of the populace and increasingly of individual citizens, you know, monitoring the rates of death, um, the rates of certain types of illness, the rise of um, state-funded centers for disease control and prevention, things like that, and makes the argument that in order for societies to function properly under industrial capitalism. People need to be healthy and well. So when we get the idea that you need to maintain a certain body mass index, eat certain types of food, um, have a positive mental outlook, that's not just about you. That's making you into a more productive subject for capitalism because all of that helps you 
be a better worker. It helps you generate value. And there are nuances and qualifications for that, but that's biopolitics in a nutshell. Psychopolitics looks at the ways in which that specifically works at the psychological level. And it suggests that we are changing our minds or we are told that we need to change our minds in a certain way to, um, again, to, to be healthy, to be considered normal and productive. So, for example, a psychopolitical maxim in the age of the internet is that it's very healthy to express yourself and actualize yourself um, through our various media channels, that normal people will post pictures of their happy family relations and, you know, their smiling faces on vacation on Instagram. And, you know, that's, that's a good sign. Right. And we should want to do that all the time. Psychopower is the implement which changes our thinking about that or which um, structures our thinking like that. I wouldn't necessarily say that there's an original condition that it shifts us away from, but rather it cultivates that sensibility in ourselves. Byung-Chul Han wrote a book called The Society of Transparency that explores specifically the virtue of transparency and openness in our psychopolitical age, where we assume that it's always healthier to be as open as possible and as expressive as possible. And um, he argues that that is a sign of psychopower. And after he published that book, a few years later, he wrote a book just called Psychopolitics, Neoliberalism and New Technologies of Power. I believe that's the title. That's psychopower. And some people would argue that psychopower is not separate from biopower. It's mm -hmm. a flavor of it, but it's um, the theoretical framework through which we can understand psychopower is already within everything Foucault is writing about. It is that thing that makes us believe that we are mentally well, even when perhaps we are not, and that abstracts us from our intuition or sensing of of the real, that which doesn't quite have a form, but that is what I would say very healthy and which is experienced differently by different people. Um, and that overexposure to certain media forms as well as other experiences in our lives, overwork takes us away from. Wow. Okay. So in the face of all of this, you know, it's, it's very easy to get lost, almost be drowning in kind of polemics against the digital environment and, and certainly psychopower and things of that nature. Uh, moving towards a close, I'd love to ask you about books, people, projects, things happening who in spaces where you think they're doing really good work in imagining what a digital society can be or digital platforms can be, can become, right? We're not just lamenting the state, but but where is the creative and kind of uh, optimistic thinking happening? Any, any books or authors you can recommend for people who want to kind of dig into that? I'm a huge fan of Byung-Chul Han. So I mm. think everybody should read his work. He's an astute philosopher that writes in a way uh, that I think is quite accessible. You don't need to have a degree in philosophy. You don't need to have a degree at all, I think, to understand his interpretation of 
quite abstruse figures like Heidegger and Foucault. Mm -hmm. So Byung-Chul Han's work on digital media, he's written a number of very short books uh, about our digital condition. I am interested in the way that people are talking about the use of blockchain technology to Mm -hmm. rebuild the internet, which a lot of leftists will bristle at the mere mention of (laughs) the technical basis for cryptocurrency and how that could possibly relate to any of this. And I could go on about this for a really long time, actually. But we're not going to get away from an internet society now that we're here. Mm -hmm. I wish we could, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but that's just not going to happen. Some people have proposed... Uh, rebuilding the internet as we know it, the internet that is based on HTTPS, Hypertext Transmission Protocol, which allows for gigantic platforms like Amazon and Alphabet, the company that owns Google, to serve as the uh, points of mediation between individuals communicating online. They've proposed using a blockchain protocol to disintermediate the web, which is really futuristic. And there are a number of potential problems with it, but it's something I've been following for five or six years now that I'm still interested in and I'm reconciling with my leftist politics. And (laughs) as somebody who is very strongly against the adoption of cryptocurrency, because blockchain is the tech that runs cryptocurrency. So using it in another way to disintermediate the web. Uh, The name of the project uh, specifically is IPFS, the Interplanetary File System. I really like Mackenzie Work's writings Mm -hmm. on digital media and uh, advanced capitalism. When you say, when you say disintermediate the web is the idea essentially that, so I'm on my computer right now, is the idea that I would have a computer that just is peer-to-peer connected directly with your computer if we're interacting rather than going through a server that kind of aggregates all of the data? Yes, that's correct. Um, To basically make it so that data cannot be so easily commodified. Mm -hmm. And I go back and forth on this because part of me thinks that the structure of data so perfectly accommodates capital exchange that as long as we have digital media everywhere, it's going to be very hard to get away from digital capitalism. Mm -hmm. Um, It's an interesting thing to think about it. I guess I'll just uh, leave it at that. Jathan Sadowski, I may be pronouncing his first name incorrectly, is a scholar whose work I really appreciate. He uh, has a podcast. The name of his co-host is escaping me right now, but the name of the podcast is this machine kills. And oh yeah, they're fun. I've heard a few episodes. Yeah, um, they're specifically about digital capitalism mm. and the confluence of neoliberal economics and the internet. And they they take some really deep dives into that world and talk to a number of interesting thinkers in that space. There's a scholar who's up and coming who just published his first book called Sinha Hung who wrote a book called Technologies of Speculation that deal with um, some of the issues of speculation and prediction that I talked about earlier and how data are invested with epistemic authority, not necessarily on the basis of their relation to objective truth, but 
because of the needs of capitalism, what capital needs to make real and bear out through data to continue sustaining itself. That's what he writes about. Um, yeah, there's there are so many different <laughs> thinkers in this space, but those are those are a few. That's a great list, and I think that's a good place to to wind it down. But uh, Emma Sam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was it was a blast. Yeah, no, this is really great. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And remember that you can find links to Emma's work, website, or books that she mentioned throughout, all on the Musing Mind website. I'll just mention here that there are some changes brewing uh, in the future of the podcast. I'm thinking of doing short reflections on each episode, so little solo shows, maybe five or ten minutes long, where I draw out some of my favorite ideas from a particular conversation and expand on them a bit. Um, I'm thinking that these might be the first patron-only content for the podcast, so they'll be made available to all Patreon supporters of the show. So if you enjoyed this episode with Emma, I'll probably be releasing that uh, in the somewhat near future. And if you would like to stay in the loop on new episodes of the podcast, you can subscribe, or there's a tab on the Musing Mind website at the top that says Newsletter, and that's where I release uh, not only new episodes, but a little more context on, on people's work and so on. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can reach out to me on Twitter, or there's a contact form on the website. All right, until next time.